Our topic tonight out of Daniel chapter 11, doing great exploits. Now we did a part one of Daniel 11, uh, leading up to, we'll do a little review here, leading up to verse 22. In verse 20 in Daniel 11, it says, There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. And this is referring to, in Daniel chapter 11, it has a king of the north and a king of the south are the main characters. And the king of the north here at this point in time was the Roman Empire. And if you missed the first part of Daniel chapter 11, you can see it on shalomadventure.com. Just type in Daniel 11 and it'll show up. Um, but here up to verse 20, it's been leading from Daniel's time up to this point. And here in verse 20, it says, there will rise one in a place who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Well, the glorious kingdom is Israel. And the one who imposes taxes is mentioned right in the Bible. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, A decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was made when Cyrenus was governor of Syria. Joseph went from Nazareth to Bethlehem to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so we have the birth of Yeshua being mentioned here in the, in the context and giving us basically the date we know it's during the time of Caesar Augustus, and we know it's when Cyrenus was the governor of Syria, so we're able to pinpoint the date of when it's taking place, and it mentions that there's, he's doing a taxing, just like it is in Daniel chapter 11. Of course, Daniel wrote it hundreds of years in advance, and so God's prophesying that this would come about, and we saw that all the verses leading up to this were going step by step of the various leaders of the king of the north leading up to this very point, and then boom, right on time, this comes on the scene, the birth of the Messiah. Goes on, verse 21, and in his place shall arise a vile person, and that's Tiberius Caesar. And history tells us that he was a vile person, just like Daniel prophesied as God had shown him. And so again, tracking right along. And then the very next verse, uh, oh, so it says, he's also mentioned in Luke, the next chapter in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, while Ananias and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John in the wilderness, and he went around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And so we have the exact date with all these different people in their various posts, and so we're able to line those all up and know the exact date when this took place, when Yeshua comes and Yeshua is immersed. So we have Yeshua's birth, we have Yeshua's immersion, and then the very next verse in Daniel chapter 11, verse 22, with a force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Well, the prince of the covenant, the covenant is God's covenant, right? We have the ark of the covenant. We have God's covenant, God's promises to us. Yeshua at the Passover, he says, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine. This is my blood in the covenant given for you. And so reference to God's promises, God's covenant with us. And he is the prince, the prince of peace. He is the, the prince of God. He is uh, uh, our prince, the great prince as referred to in Daniel. And so here the prince of the covenant is broken. And so we have Yeshua in three verses. We have Yeshua's birth, we have his immersion, and we have his death and resurrection. So leading right on through uh, in the book of Daniel chapter 11, leading us right up to that point. And that's where we left off. And that's where we'll pick up as history continues from that section on. And so some of the things we've learned 
uh, some principles to apply in Daniel and Revelation that they go, all the prophecies go from the time of the prophet to the very end of time. And we see that already with Daniel chapter 11. It started Daniel's day and it's taken us thus far up to the Messiah and it's going to continue to take us step by step all the way through the last 2,000 years up to our age, just as Daniel 2 did and Daniel 7 did and Daniel 8 did. This is also, and Daniel 9 is going to do the same thing. And, uh, and so there's no gap, there's no 2,000 year gap where God went on vacation for a while and forgot about his people and didn't care about his people. No, God has been intricately concerned with everything that takes place all down through the ages. And so the Bible as a whole gives us the history of God's work here on earth among his people from creation all the way to the end of time. With again, no big gap in the middle. That's the purpose of, of these prophecies of Daniel and of Revelation is to fill in the last 2,000 years. For them, it was prophecy. For us, a lot of it, most of it is history and we're living in the very last pieces of those prophecies. Another principle was each prophecy repeats and expands. Right? They're not different prophecies. They're not, each chapter is not a different thing. It doesn't go off on tangents. All of them continue with the very same simple blueprint that we saw in Daniel 2, and they just continue to repeat off that Daniel 2 blueprint, expanding and giving us more information, but never leaving that basic lineage, that basic timeline. And, uh, and the same with Revelation. It continues the same way. If you start pulling another kind of stuff and going off on tangents, that's how it's easy to get lost and then you can just make it say whatever you want. But if you stay with that blueprint, you'll see the harmony of the entire Bible. Not taking, it's not talking about individuals, but nations, systems, and organizations. And so all it pinpointed Tiberius Caesar and pinpointed uh, uh, Caesar Augustus and these various things, it's not about them, it's about the whole of it, right? So they're not either good or bad, that's not the issue. It's referring to the king of the north that's playing its role at that point in time. And the same with the other parts of Daniel, it refers to beasts and metals and stuff like that. Those are systems and nations, not individual people. There could be individual people in, in all kingdoms, in whatever kingdom. And there could be lost people even within the glorious kingdom, right? So, so people can be saved and lost no matter what title or whatever they're under, but God is just depicting here the various different systems that are used for good or for evil or whatever, as it takes place here on earth. And that's important. We're going to be looking a little bit more of that tonight, especially, as we've looked over through the various chapters. So we don't want to judge anyone because of what they were born under or what they happened to be under at the time, whatever system or whatever nation they happened to be under. As we've looked at Babylon and, and Medo-Persia and Greece, um, people could be born of that nation and live in that nation and still be lost or saved. Uh, regardless of how it plays out in Bible prophecy. The focus is the Messiah. Again, the focus is not all these nations and all these beasts and all these different kings. The focus is the Messiah. As we've seen this chapter, it's already pinnacled at the Messiah's first advent, and it will end at his second coming. And that's been the focus of all of these prophecies and will continue to be so. Same with Revelation. The purpose is to know where we're at. So it gives us the timeline, because they, they, they could have been able to know 2,000 years ago, okay, there's one who's going to impose taxes. Boom, here he goes and makes taxing the whole world. And there's going to be a vile guy, and this guy is vile. And the prince of the covenant is going to be broken. And they could have seen that that was all referring to the Messiah. So same in our day, we can know the day that we are living in. And Daniel 11 is going to get very, very specific about our day.
and the nations listed directly affect God's people and the Bible. These prophecies of Daniel, Revelation, the Bible as a whole, is not about every single person on earth. It's not about every nation on the earth. It focuses on where God is at work and where people are open and receptive to him for the most part. There are saved people in all parts of the earth, but it's looking at where is there uh, uh, large groups of people who are open and receptive and where God's word is being received and where God's word is being taught and where God's word is being disseminated. And that's where it continues to follow. And so when we get dispersed out of Israel, the Bible follows us, right? And so when we got taken to Babylon, then that's where the prophecies go and the prophecies focused on Babylon. And so it continues that way wherever God's word continues. That's an important principle to know which nations should be listed in, in these prophecies. Okay, so back to Daniel 11, picking up now new and moving forward. Verse 23. After the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. Now, I believe this point here, because, uh, well, let me give you a little review back again. The king of the north, prior to it being the Roman Empire, the king of the north was the northern portion of the uh, Greek kingdom, because the Greek kingdom split into four sections, and above Israel was one portion, and below Israel was another portion. So we had a king of the north and a king of the south, and they kept on battling it out, and Israel was stuck in the middle of that, and as they battled it out, but then when Rome comes into the scene, Rome takes over both of those. And so for a time period, there's really only the king of the north. And that's what we've been seeing. And so it's gone now, and now it comes here, and I believe this, after the league is made with him, still referring to the king of the north here, I believe this league is Constantine making a league with God, his so-called conversion to God, his uniting together with God, and him uniting his kingdom under that. Because it says, he, he, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. Well, Christians at that time in, in the Roman kingdom were not the majority. They were not the biggest number. And yet he unites with that people group. He has this so-called vision. He marches his entire army through the river and baptizes them all and makes the nation, boom, now we're a Christian nation. And so he starts with this small group of people and he gives it great clout. And so now we're seeing this next stage in the prophecies and he will do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. And I believe this is referring to what he has done. He's doing what his forefathers have not done. He's uniting church and state together. He's uniting this nation, the Roman nation, with Bible Christianity, or a version, his version of Bible Christianity. And so he's uniting, following the so-called so following the true God with his nation, and again, making it a nationalistic, political, 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 uh, religio-political power, which his fathers had not done, at least not using the Bible religion 
They've all had their other pagan religions and other religions, but here for the first time doing what his forefathers had not done, he's uniting the pagan kingdom with Christianity. And dispersing the spoils, that can be in reference as it continues on, where favors are shown to those who then also become Christians. He'll give them kingdoms and fiefdoms and the various different kings after him will unite people and give them prominence if they're willing to play along and play the part. And so then as they go and they do their crusades and they can take the plunder from those crusades and become rich from those uh, activities. And so we've seen in Daniel chapter 2, it's gone from Babylon to Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and then to Christian Rome, and the same in Daniel chapter 7, and then the same in chapter 8. And so right here in this point of the prophecy, we're in this next stage of going from pagan Rome to Christianized Rome, doing what his forefathers had not done, making this shift here. And so it's still Rome, just like in Daniel 2, the simple blueprint, the legs of iron, and the iron represented Rome. And then it becomes feet of iron and clay. Still iron. The iron is still there. That does not change. The same with Daniel 7. We get a beast, and it remains the same beast. He's got ten horns. Rome divides up. The Roman Empire divided up. Pagan Roman Empire divided up into ten nations as it collapsed. And then a little horn comes up out of the same beast. Not a different beast, but a little horn comes up out of that same beast and changes the whole thing. And so now we have a new power, but still coming up out of Rome. And so we have this now going into this Christian Roman phase, and that's with Constantine coming on the scene. Still now the king of the north. But also at this time, as the kingdom has fallen apart, the Roman Empire has fallen apart, a new king of the south comes along, also out of the south. And he, the king of the north, shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And so now there is now a new king of the south, and this king of the north begins to fight and attack the king of the south. This is the first crusade, I believe the first crusade, in 10, 50, uh, 1096, and we talked about that in, in talking, when we did Tishba'av, the, uh, the Crusades, and, and that took place, started on the ninth day of the month of Av. And so here now the Crusades begin, and the king of the north attacking down to the king of the south. So who then is the king of the south? Well, we look at historical maps. We have Christianity ruling in the north over Jerusalem, and the south at this point in time becomes Islam. Islam rises up out of the south, south of Jerusalem, south of Israel, and takes over this entire red area here, used to be the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire collapsed, and so now the king of the north is only in the north, and Islam takes over all the south of the Mediterranean. North Africa becomes Islamic. And so now we have these two battles, these two parties, these two powers fighting it out. And so now the king of the south is Islam. People, people wondered, where is Islam in Bible prophecy? This is where Islam is in Bible prophecy. And we begin these now three major 
discussions of three battles in Daniel chapter 11 of the king of the north and the king of the south. In Revelation, it talks about three woes. And I believe these three battles between the king of the north and the king of the south parallel the same three woes. So Islam is there in Revelation as well in those woes mentioned in Revelation. And so now this battle comes, and so the king of the north attacks the king of the south in a mighty battle, and the king of the south comes up with a mighty army, and they're fighting it out. And the king of the north, Christianity, Christian Rome, takes over Israel and, and Jerusalem again. And that's the focus on who's ruling over Jerusalem. Just like when it was the two parts of Greece and they were fighting over it and Israel is stuck in the middle. And so we're stuck in the middle again between uh, Christian Rome and Islam. And neither party is good. So you didn't want either party ruling over you because neither one of them were nice to us. They all killed us, the Crusades killed us, and Islam uh, attacked us, and sometimes was sometimes a little nicer than Christian Rome was. But either party was not great to be under, and yet we were stuck in the middle. And so we've seen that all throughout this prophecy, Israel is stuck in the middle, but that's okay. Because Yeshua was stuck in the middle as well. He was hung between two thieves, and he was right there in the midst. And so if we're in the middle, we're with him. In the middle, between the battle that rages on, and in your life right now, maybe you're in the midst of some battle. You're between two forces pulling at you, maybe between uh, two situations, but it's okay to be in the middle of it, in the midst of the battle, because that's where God is. And God is on our side, and God will take care of us. He's taking care of us through all these verses, and he's going to take care of us all through the rest of the verses as well. He will see us through. There'll be, there'll be casualties along the way. There'll be martyrs along the way. But this death on this earth is not the end, as we trust in the Lord and believe in him. And so these become now the two major parties all the way to the very end of Daniel chapter 11. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. Now again, there could be saved people in Islam at that time, saved people in Roman Christianity at that time, but as a whole, these parties are bent on evil. As a whole, these two players, their, their, their workings are not following the Bible, again, as a whole, as the leadership. And it could have been leaders that were saved as well, but as a whole, the roles that they're playing, their hearts are bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. So they can play their little games, they can lie to each other, they can make packs with each other and break those packs and they can continue on with their, their continued battles. There's like nine different crusades and lots of different battles that took place between these parties. But all in the midst of it all, it doesn't all matter because it's not going to prosper because in the end, God is still in control. God still has his appointed time. And we want to be on God's timeline. We want to be tracking with God. We want to be following with God in the midst of it all. And that's what counts. Waiting upon the Lord to work his deliverance in his time. And so all the players in this world, they're still playing their games. And maybe in your life, maybe your boss or maybe your landlord or maybe your tenant or maybe your employee or, or some of your family members, they're playing their games and they're playing their little childish behavior and, and accusing you and harassing you. And they're going to prosper for a time, but in the end, it's not going to prosper forever. God has his appointed time and his deliverance in each one of our lives. And it might be at his coming, but nonetheless, God will deliver us. While returning to his land with great riches, 
his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So the king of the north attacks the king of the south in these crusades, and on his way back, they conquer Jerusalem. On their way back, they stop in Israel, they stop in Jerusalem, and they take a whole bunch of relics and disperse them around, as it said in that early verse, disperse them around to the various different churches, and you can go and you can pray to the bone of John the Baptist, or, or this piece of a cross, or this piece of this, or this piece of that, or crawl up the staircases uh, that, uh, that they took out of Jerusalem, that I forget what's supposed to be Yeshua's, um, going before Pontius Pilate, or something like that, and taken into Rome and in various different places and placed, and so they go back, their heart is against the covenant, and they do damage and taking it back with them. Verse 29, at the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. Ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved. And we're going to spend a, quite a little bit of time here on this verse. And this here is now this second of these three woes, or second of the three battles that are mentioned here in Daniel chapter 11 between the king of the north and the king of the south. And I've read a number of different books on this and studying this for a while in preparation for this, but a lot of this I'm getting now is from, from a good friend of mine, Tim Rosenberg, uh, who's put a really good series together on this and written a real good book on this. But at this appointed time he shall return. So this is the king of the north returning again towards the king of the south to battle again, because between these two times, the king of the south has crept their way up and has conquered Jerusalem again and more territory. And so the king of the north comes down to attack again, but it shall not be as the former or the latter time. Right? So if you've got this time and you have a former time and you have a latter time, you have three times, right? So the former time we already saw and the king of the north won and conquered Jerusalem. And I believe when we get to the very end, we're going to see the king of the north is going to conquer and rule over Jerusalem again. But here in this middle time, it says it won't be like the former and it won't be like the latter. In other words, the king of the north does not gain Jerusalem at this point in time. Why? Because ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved. Okay, now we're going to do a little tour here. This is a room in the Vatican. I forget the name of it. This is a room in the Vatican. And there's the Pope sitting right there in the middle. And you see he's in white with his red uh, scarlet uh, vest on or whatever. And his white uh, kippah. And then you got a bunch of men sitting around. You've got a Christmas tree in the corner. And you got all these men there in black. And, uh, and then some have a, a red, scarlet, and then purple... Uh, uh, yarmulkes on, or whatever they call them, but uh, their hats on, and they're there sitting around him, right? And he's talking. Now you look at these paintings in this room. Huge, huge paintings, like 20 feet tall, right? And so you have these paintings. Uh, my thing's not going to work on that screen there, but you got these paintings, one on either side of him, right? And so those two paintings, we're going to be, there's three paintings there that depict one event. So you got one to his right, you got, well, one to our right, one to our left, and then this other one around this corner here, those three depict one event, okay, that we're going to be talking about. But now this other painting here, which is wide, it's not only tall 20 or so feet, it's also about 20 or so feet wide, 
we're going to be talking about that painting, and I'm going to switch to another angle, and so now there's a different angle, a different pope on a different day. There he is, oops, how did I do that? There he is in white, and again, a bunch of men there in black. And so now, so that we turned the corner, right? So behind him are those two paintings, and then that one that I mentioned, those three having to do with one event. And now these two paintings on, our, on the, his right wall, one in the middle, we'll be talking about that, and then the one next to it, both those paintings depict the same event, the one that we just read about in Daniel chapter 11. Now I'm going to zoom in on the middle picture there. So you see the middle picture there, and then boom, that's the middle picture. And you see this sea battle taking place. Ships from Cyprus. We've got this battle, this maritime battle taking place that was so important to them that they painted this huge, huge painting and put it right in this room where the Pope meets often with people. Okay, and so you see down here, and then there's a map of what took place in the middle, and then you got these three people here, and those three people on the left there, they are the th representing the three nations that came together in what was called the Holy League. Well, why was it called a Holy League? Because it was a holy war, right? So it's the Holy Roman Empire fighting against the Islam. So it's a religious war in their minds, and so they called it the Holy League, and that was Spain and Venice and Rome coming together and uniting their forces together to go and attack the king of the south, to go and attack Islam and reconquer Jerusalem. And so there the painting is depicted, and so you see these three naked babies flying over those three uh, people with their little halos, and they're going to anoint them with their halos or crown them with their halos. And then you got some other naked babies on the right-hand side coming to this angel of death, this skeleton there with this sickle, and they're killing these people there on the bottom. You see these people, and those people... Uh, you know, terrified and horrified and crouching and, 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 and representing Islam being conquered, right? And in the picture there, I mean, none of them have swords or anything like that, right? So they're like almost like they're, they're, they're civilians or, or, you know, just people being killed there. But that's the painting that's on the wall. And they're commemorating that they won and won that battle, won that crusade. But they did not win Jerusalem. Because here's a representation of the map of it. So we have the Holy Roman Empire in the middle there, right in the tan. And again, it's called, at that point, the Holy Roman Empire because it was the pagan Roman Empire, and now it became Christianized. And so I didn't make this map. I didn't type that in there. It's just a map. That's how, they, that's how they referred to it. They referred to it historically as the Holy Roman Empire because Rome, it's still Rome, but now it's holy because as not as his fathers had done before, it united with Christianity, making it the holy, so-called holy Roman Empire. And then so you see the Ottoman Empire, that was the Islamic Empire. And so the Ottoman Empire at this point in time has conquered Jerusalem, conquered Israel, and has even moved up into what's today Turkey and today's Greece and some other uh, countries and has moved up into that area. And so the Holy Roman Empire is going down to attack and recapture those lands and recapture Jerusalem. And so they make this plan. Constantine, back before this, Constantine had moved the, the, uh, the capital from Rome to Constantinople, which is over there uh, on the right-hand side. 
And so the leaders in Constantinople, they hear about this plot, this plan to have this another crusade and for Rome to come down and to conquer. And so what do they do? They counterattack and they send ships from where? From Cyprus. 300 ships and about 300 ships coming at them, about 300 against 300. And they meet in Lepanto. And the paintings that we were looking at, those two that were on that wall, those two big, huge ones, refer to the Battle of Lepanto. And so you can type that in, Battle of Lepanto, and those pictures will come up for you. And so here's Lepanto, and so they meet, they're going on their way towards Jerusalem, they're coming to battle in the south, and they meet there at Lepanto, and they have this huge maritime battle. Islam was ruling a big portion of the Mediterranean Sea because of the naval forces, and their naval forces pretty much get decimated. And so it was a big loss for Islam as far as their naval forces, but Rome received such a uh, wounding in their naval forces through that battle. They weren't able to continue on. They weren't able to conquer Jerusalem. Instead, they turned back and went back to Rome. And so they won. Yes, they won the battle, but they didn't win the war. And so they go back to Rome. Now, as we read, ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return, right, and that's exactly what happened, return to Rome, return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now these, back to the Vatican, and these other three paintings, so I'd imagine that the plan was, they have the two paintings describing and showing off the, the, the maritime battle at uh, Lepanto, and then they have the rest of the wall there, and I believe they would want to have pictures of conquering Jerusalem. But they don't. Why? Because they didn't conquer Jerusalem. But as the prophecy says, they will return, and they will join with those who are against the Holy Covenant, and they will do damage to those who are with the Holy Covenant. And now, specifically here, but of course over the history of time, we know that through these various crusades, the Jews were stuck in the middle and the Jews were slaughtered over and over again through the crusades and followed God's holy covenant, keeping God's commandments, keeping God's word, and even being killed for following the Bible and reading the Bible and eating what the Bible says not to eat, and not, and, uh, eating what the Bible says to eat, and not eating what the Bible says not to eat, just like in Daniel chapter 1, and not bowing down to statues, just like it says in Daniel chapter 3. And so they followed the Bible, and through that whole time, through those dark ages, through all those crusades, the Jewish people remained faithful to God, and yet were often slaughtered as a result, doing damage to those who are following God's holy covenant. But specifically here in this time of the Lepanto, and with these pictures here that follow this scene, we have these three pictures describing this next event, this major event, at least in, in the Vatican's mind. That they put these three paintings up, depicting this next event. And so here again, we see a different picture of the Pope there in white, and again, surrounded with people in black. And you see again the painting to the right and the painting to the left. Now, when I pulled up this picture, and I just typed in this room, I forget the name of the room, I typed in the room to get various pictures of this room, and this one popped up with an article that had this picture with it. And when this picture was taken, what was taking place, the newspaper, I forget it was Reuters or someone, wrote as their headline for their article was, Pope as diplomat to seek peace. 
Okay, so he gathered these various diplomats, had them wear black, and there he is in white, and he's telling them, I want you guys to go and to seek peace. And the news reporters are there, and they write that down. Pope calls for diplomats to seek peace, right? Okay, now he's standing right between, or sitting right between these two paintings. And another one that's depicting also the story of this event, just to his right. So now we're going to zoom in on this painting that's to our left, his right. And you can see even now on the bottom of it, there is a soldier laying down and he's got a sword in his hand, right? Maybe you can see that. So let's zoom in on that picture. Here's the rest of it. There's the guy on the bottom, the soldier there with a sword in his hand, and a soldier slaying him, and another soldier slaying a bunch of people. But the rest of the people that are getting slaughtered, they don't have swords in their hands. They're all old people, women, civilians that are being slaughtered there. And then you see up in the top part, you see a naked man being thrown out of a window. He was the leader of the Huguenots. This is the Huguenots. And they were Protestants following the Bible, and to the best of their knowledge. And so they took the leader in the middle of the night. This is not a battle. This is not a war. This is the middle of the night, dragging the guy out of his bed and throwing him out the window and killing him, and then killing these civilian Huguenots who were trying, by God's grace, to follow the Holy Covenant as best as they understood it at that time. So these are civilians that are getting killed, and historians say somewhere between 35,000 to 70,000 civilians were slaughtered, and it's known as the St. Bartholomew Massacre. Maybe you've heard of that. Type that in, St. Bartholomew Massacre, and this picture will show up, no doubt, and others as well in the history of that. And so this was an important event to them, and they made three paintings. The first one of what, uh, some events that took place before the slaughter, then the slaughter, and then events that took place just after the slaughter. So within days, something like close to 70,000 people are slaughtered. And the Pope was sitting there fairly recently, sitting in that chair with these paintings behind him, and he's telling diplomats to go and seek peace. Underneath this painting, of soldiers from the Holy Roman Empire slaughtering civilians because they were a different religion than them. Very interesting. Now, it's kind of a little aside, but you see this statue that's on the left-hand side, and it's of this naked guy, or almost naked guy standing there, this muscular naked guy posing there, okay? I'll come back to that in a little bit. So that's that painting uh, of the St. Bartholomew right there in the Vatican. And so here's another painting, another picture at the Vatican. This is from a, a Catholic news source. And so there's the Pope again in white with a green vest on and a whole bunch of guys in greens. And I don't know if someone here can explain why they had different colors at different times. I don't know if this was St. Patty's Day or a Green Earth Day or something like that. But obviously they're organized. And that's the point I'm trying to point. They know which day to wear what colors. There's an organizational thing going on here. It's not haphazard. Oh, we just happened to pick that room, and that painting just happened to be there at the time. There's a purpose and a plan for what they're doing, a purpose and a plan, what they're wearing, when they're wearing, and they're all unified together, and they're all doing their thing together. Right? And so this is not just haphazard. So they put those paintings there on purpose, and so there again, again on the left, you can see the, 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 the angel of death, the skeleton there, killing those people, and then the, the beginning of that... Uh, the St. Paul Bartholomew massacre, and then the massacre there. And the Pope is now off to the left, or, or his right, our left, 
right underneath that painting. This man of peace, speaking underneath a painting depicting the St. Bartholomew massacre being basically exalted in how he slaughtered the Huguenots. And they did that after the Lepanto, Battle of Lepanto, they won the battle, they go back, as it says in Daniel chapter 11, and do damage to those who are keeping the Holy Covenant and unite with those who are not keeping the Holy Covenant. And you had this uniting going on of this Holy League, or so-called Holy League, and doing the slaughters. Now, also in this room, so you see that one statue there, and there's a whole bunch of statues. You can see another statue there of these naked men in this room. And again, this room is filled with mostly men, if not almost all the time, only men. But men who are, don't get married. Now, in this same room is this statue of two naked men, kind of in a weird position, if you ask me, with their legs over each other. I don't know what they're doing there or what they're supposed to be doing there or why someone would put a statue like that in this room where men who don't get married hang out a lot. Have all these naked men and these kind of things. It's just kind of, all of it's kind of weird if you ask me. That's again a little aside there. That doesn't have anything to do with Daniel 11 per se, but, uh, but it's just some weird stuff goes on in that room, it seems to me. And again, underneath that picture, Calling for peace? Diplomats go and seek peace? Well, how about you take that picture down? Let's start there. How about with that? Let's seek peace by you taking that painting down and renouncing that you killed those Huguenots. That would be a good place to start. So it seems. Okay, so back to Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation, and those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flatteries. These are some of the, do you remember these words from before? These are almost the same exact words that we've seen in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8. And so again, these prophecies parallel each other. They track with each other. We've read where he defiles the sanctuary fortress, where he brings in the daily, uh, uh, takes down the daily sexual, uh, sac sacrifices, and where he brings in the abomination of desolation. And Yeshua even refers to that, and we saw that when we did Matthew 24 on Tish B'Av, uh, that uh, Yeshua says, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And so it's spoken of a few different times in the book of Daniel, and this is one of them. So again, it's paralleling, it's still paralleling the same power, the same king of the north, the same beast out of Revelation 7, the same uh, power, uh, the little horn out of Daniel chapter 8, and the same iron power out of Daniel chapter 2. It's all the same power there, all continuing with the same events. And so the sanctuary already, Jerusalem, the temple is not there, so which sanctuary is he talking about? Well, we saw that when we looked at Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. And again, if you missed that, you can see it on shalomadventure.com. But the heavenly sanctuary is being cast down. The truth of the heavenly sanctuary, the whole book, like the book of uh, Hebrews, primarily is talking about the heavenly sanctuary. Good portions of the book of Revelation talks about the heavenly sanctuary. And so that whole teaching, the whole belief, the whole understanding of the heavenly sanctuary has been cast down and is basically not talked about or understood at all. And yet it's very important for us to understand. The daily sacrifice, do away with the daily. Well, what took place on a daily basis in the sanctuary? The daily sacrifices. And what was the purpose of the daily sacrifices in the temple when the temple was still standing? What was the purpose of it? 
Why would we bring sacrifices? What were the morning and evening sacrifices? For the forgiveness of sins, right? And so here, at this point in history, the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Church, has taken away that we receive forgiveness through the ultimate sacrifice, through the Lamb of God, who all those lambs in the sanctuary represented, pointed forward to, through the Messiah. And instead of going to him to receive forgiveness and accept his death in our place, we go to a little booth. We don't, but the, the, the teacher go in a little booth and you confess your sins to a human. And instead of him saying, well, confess the sins to the Lord and receive his forgiveness because he shed his blood in your behalf, they say, go and say some penance, do some penances and crawl up some steps or take some beads and count some beads and say some, some words and say some prayers that they have written out for you to say. And then you will receive forgiveness of sins. So they've taken away the whole purpose of the daily sacrifice and have replaced it with an abomination of desolation with man-made works and replaced it. And that's what it's referring to here, primarily. Bigger than that as well, and we'll get to more in another time. So that's, again, historically, this is where we're at. And those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flatteries. You do against the covenant, you bow down to statues, you do against God's covenant, you go against God's law, you break God's Sabbath, and you're going to heaven. So with flatteries, telling them you do these things, you go directly against God's word, and that's what gets you to heaven. And yet if you follow God's word, you're condemned and get slaughtered. So with flatteries, they're corrupting the people. And if you want to get your, your, your loved one out of purgatory, which is not mentioned in the Bible, just give more money or do these things. Corrupting the people with flatteries. You'll have indulgence and have forgiveness of all your sins all the way in the future if you give this much. With flatteries corrupting the people. Because they're doing wickedly. Verse 20, 32. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. And again, I talked about Judaism, down through these dark ages, continued to read the word of God, continued to instruct their, their children, continued to have bar mitzvahs, continued to raise the children in the word of God, continued to instruct others, continued to do mighty great things, uh, keeping the word of God alive and, and transcribing it over and over again and passing it down the Torah at the point of death. Being slaughtered, having their heads cut off, being hoisted up on poles, birds to peck at our bodies and eat them away, but keeping the word of God, doing mighty, holy exploits. The people who know their God throughout the dark ages, throughout the time, will remain and will do mighty things for God. And that's what's prophesied here. And that's exactly what has taken place. Now, I also want to talk about two people here. John Wycliffe, who also knew his God and was strong in his God and carried out great exploits and who taught people. One of the things that Wycliffe was big on was instructing other preachers to teach other people. It was very uh, important to him for instruction to the people in their own language. He was in England, and so he taught in English, he, he preached in English, and he taught people to teach in English, and he shared the word of God in English with the people. He was instructing people. Now, that was uncommon. That sounds like, okay, yeah, so what's with that? But that was uncommon in that day. The services were in Latin. No one understood it, and it didn't matter as long as you just continued to say the things. And so he went against the tide with that, and, of course, 
it was not favorable to Rome. And so Rome condemned him for that. He also spoke out against the friars, called them lazy, and uh, the, the Rome did not like that and condemned him for that. And also he was one of the first ones to coin, as we've already seen from Daniel chapter 7, and identified Rome as the anti-Messiah. And coins then, of course, that didn't get him any favor, and they wanted to kill him, but at that time there were two popes. And there was a schism, and they were fighting it out, battling who was the real pope. And so they didn't have time to spend too much time on Wycliffe. And so he was able to translate the Bible, the first Bible translated into English. And that goes all the way back to Wycliffe's time. And then he died of a stroke. And so they never got to him. They never were able to kill him, although they wanted to. They were not able to because, again, of that schism. Now, uh, about 70 or so years later, a man named John Huss who's over in Bohemia, uh, which is today's uh, uh, Czech Republic, and he was in Prague, and there was a man named Jerome who took the writings of Wycliffe and brought them to Bohemia, and that's where we get Rhapsody from. If you didn't know, Bohemia Rhapsody comes from this time. But, uh, but uh, so he, he took the, Jerome took the, the writings of Wycliffe, and the queen of Bohemia came a believer in Wycliffe's writings and began to disperse it and share it with the people in Bohemia. And so Jerome also shared it with John Huss. And John Huss became a believer in the true gospel as he understood it to the mountain. He was able to understand it at that point in time and began following God and began teaching it again in the language of the people. Well, Rome did not like that. And so they put down an edict against uh, Prague and they were not allowed to have any more weddings, not able to have any more christenings, not able to have any more baptisms, not able to have services and funerals, which again struck terror into the people. So Huss left Prague for a, for a time and then he came back when things calmed down. And so they called him in uh, to uh, try him. And that picks up right here. John Huss, this is your last chance to recant and abjure all your errors. I call God to witness that all I have written and preached has been to rescue souls from sin. There can be no turning back. My Lord walked the paths of truth and duty, even though it took him to Calvary. Can I, one of his humble followers, turn back now to witness to God's truth is more important than life? Joyfully, then, will I confirm with my blood all the writings and preachings of truths that I've held. 
into thy hands, O Lord. I commit my spirit. Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, the Son of David, have mercy on me. And they killed him. They burned him to death. Now the next verse in Daniel chapter 11 says, Yet for many days, these who do in great exploits, for many days thou shalt fall by the sword and flame by captivity and plundering. Written in Daniel's day by the sword, and we've already seen that in the paintings of the St. Bartholomew, by the flame. Now in the Bible, I don't know many people who are killed by the flame. Now we have uh, Daniel's three friends who were thrown into the fiery furnace, but other than that, I don't remember many people being burned to death. Stoning, crucifixion, other type of things, swords, other type of deaths, but the flame. But God foreseeing from Daniel's day to verse 33 mentions to the sword and to the flame and through the dark ages burning at the stake, burning with the flame, something that Rome, pagan Rome would do and martyrs and put them up and burn them along the road so when the emperor would go down the road these people would be burning so it would light up his road. But Holy Roman Empire continued it against heretics. Heretics for translating the Bible into the language of the people, for preaching in English, for in, his, in, in, in whatever they spoke in Bohemia, Bohemian, I guess, uh, burned at the stake. And that's what the Bible says would happen, to the sword, to the flame, by captivity, and that's where we're going to go next, and plundering. Now when they shall fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. And so people did join, people did by faith, they saw John Huss and others and, and, and reading the word of God translated or translated into the language of the people and the Torah being kept and written and written out and passed down from generation to generation, held fast. People did join, people did become believers, but others joined for not so good reasons as well. And history plays that out as well. Some of those of understanding shall fall. To refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. And so some will fall, but the purpose God allows the persecution, the purpose that God allows the sword and the flame and the, and, the, and, the, and the captivities and the plundering is to purify us. The reason he allows us to be caught in the middle is to purify us, to refine us, and to make us white to be able to stand pure before God. 
Now, I mentioned Jerome. Jerome took the writings from Wycliffe from England and brought them to Prague and shared them with John Huss. Well, he comes and he gets captured. Now, John Huss was spared for a time because at the time, so under Wycliffe, there were two popes battling it out. Under John Huss, there were three popes battling it out, and so he was spared for a time. But eventually, Jerome gets captured, and they imprison him. And they call him to recant. So he's captured and kept for like a year. They did John Huss fairly fast, and they saw that didn't work so well. And so they thought they'd get a recantation if they put pressure on Jerome, and they did. He recanted. He fell. As Daniel says, some will fall. And he goes back to his cell, and he recants of his recantation. He repents that he recanted before them, that he denied God before men. And he prayed, and he asked God's forgiveness and he was purified and refined and made white. And we're going to pick up the rest of that story in another video clip. After Huss was delivered up to the secular authorities, he was asked one last time if he wanted to recant. What errors shall I renounce, he asked. I know myself guilty of none. He was brought to this very spot here in Constance, and they burned him to death. They had to light the fire three times. They wanted to ensure his body was completely consumed. They dug up his ashes along with the soil under him and threw it into the Rhine River. About a year later, Jerome was also brought to this same spot. And as his executioner was standing behind him, Jerome said, apply the fire before my face. Had I been afraid, I should not been here. They died with heroic bearing, and a zealous papist commenting on the death of Huss and Jerome said these words. Both bore themselves with constant mind when their last hour approached. They prepared for the fire as if they were going to a marriage feast. They uttered no cry of pain. When the flames rose, they began to sing hymns, and scarce could the vehemency of the fire stop their singing. Both these men lived their lives 100% for God, so that when they died, as tragic as it was, they died with no regrets. If we live our lives today 100% for God, fully surrendered to Him, we also can live a life where we have no regrets. That was put together by a group called Lineage. Uh, they call the series Lineage. So you have the line of history. So they cover the history, uh, the line of history, lineage, uh, production, something like that. It's very good. If you can see, you want to see more of it, uh, history before and after what takes place, uh, you can see it on YouTube and stuff like that. But 
But here are these people, Wycliffe stood for God, died, buried, they dig him up years later, burn his bones by the flame. John Huss, they take to the stake and they burn him. Jerome, they try and get him to recant, and that doesn't work, they burn him by the flame. And that's where we pause temporarily in Daniel chapter 11, and hopefully by God's grace, next week we'll pick up the rest of Daniel 11, and it will take us to our day, and we won't be looking at historical, well, it'll be history because it's a couple years ago and this year and a couple of days ago and weeks ago, but we'll be looking at things that are taking place right in our day, right in our lifetime, that Daniel 11 is going to take us right up to the very end of time in this battle between the king of the north and the king of the south in the third woe or the third major battle that's talked about in Daniel chapter 11. And so may we stand faithful for God as that man Adam, I forget his last name, uh, made those two appeals. I'd like to make those same appeals as we in a moment prepare to pray. If you have fallen away, Maybe one time you were living strong for God. And maybe you're still living for him, but not quite the same. Maybe there's some areas where you denied him. Maybe some areas where you had victory and you've backslidden in those areas and are no longer living a victorious life in those areas. And you'd like to recant of that. And you'd like to get back on track with God. And you'd like God to, to give you victory again in those areas and, and cleanse your records, purify you, make you white, and refine you and prepare you for his calling. And in a moment when we pray, I ask you to confess those sins, or if there's any other sin on your record, maybe something you've never gained the victory over, but God is calling you, and you sense God's conviction upon you, and you want to have your record clean, made white, purified, and refined. Then in a moment when we pray, you can confess that before God and receive his forgiveness because of the blood of the Lamb, because of Yeshua's sacrifice in your behalf and move forward by his Holy Spirit, a victorious life. Secondly, if you see that God is calling you into these last days, and you want to commit your life wholly to God, to live fully and wholly for him, in the middle of it all, in the midst of it all, and by God's grace, ask for God to hold you fast, even unto death, if necessary. Not making a boastful claim like Peter, Lord, I'll go to death for you and go to die for you and then fall away. But ask for God to right now empower you and to strengthen you for that time. Be dependent upon him and ask, Lord, Lord, if you call me to die for you, give me the strength at that time. I'm committing now while I'm calm in peace in a time of peace and conscious of mind and heart. That if that time comes, whatever mind state I'm in, I want you now to hear my prayer and to answer it then, to hold me fast. And may I even sing as they're burning me, sing as they're cutting my head off, sing your praises and testify to you in life or in death. And if that's your commitment and that's your desire, in a moment when we pray, you can ask God to do that in your life. Thirdly or fourthly, you don't have to wait till that time. If you want God to give you the strength to testify before him, it doesn't have to be at the point of death. It might be just at the point that your boss is pushing you a little further to break some of God's commandment or do what you know is wrong. 
or someone in your family or someone in your life or someone at school or someone that you know or some situation or maybe just the devil himself tempting you and whispering in your ear to compromise your faith. And you want to ask God to give you the strength now and into the future to stand faithful to God in this life and to testify for him and to witness for him. Or maybe fifthly, you want God to work great exploits through you. You want the Holy Spirit to so fill you that the history books in heaven will write that they did great exploits and taught others about God's holy covenant. And you want to live God's holy covenant by his holy grace, by his power. Following like Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, not yielding in diet. Daniel chapter 3, not bowing down to any idol or anything of this earth, but putting God first and foremost. And standing before God and testifying to others and teaching others and sharing the word of God with others. God's impressing your heart and mind of some ministry that he's called you to. And you want God's strength to go before you and minister before you and prepare those hearts and minds that he's called you to reach. Or maybe you're just sensing you've got more time on your hand, you've got energy and you want to share, but you don't know how, you don't know where there's an opening. Feel free to pray it in a moment when we pray. God, open it up to me and feel free to get with me afterwards and we can discuss the gifts and talents that God has blessed you with and possible ways that you, God can use you in his service. God has a plan for everyone and a talent for everyone and a service for everyone to be used by him. And so if you want to be used by him and doing great exploits for him by his grace, in a moment when we pray, ask God to do that through you and prepare you for it and prepare the way. And so if any of those areas apply to you or maybe some other area God has been speaking to your heart and mind about, if you've just been amazed at the accuracy of the word of God down through the ages, these prophecies of thousand years old, leading right up and depicting and describing the events for thousands of years, and you're just awed about the Bible. And you just want to give honor and glory and praise to God and thank him for his word. And thank him for opening up his word. And thank him for revealing the time that we have been living in. And that he cared about the Huguenots and that he cared about us and that he cared about the Jewish people that were slaughtered and massacred through those time periods. And you want to just praise God that he has sustained us to this day, that he has sustained his word to this day, that his word is accurate. And if it's so accurate in Daniel 11, then it's accurate in Revelation. And if it's accurate in Daniel and Revelation, then it's accurate in Genesis. And it's, ac it's accurate in Exodus. And it's accurate in Matthew. And it's accurate all throughout. God's word is truth. And if you just want to praise him for that in a moment when we pray, you can ask God and just thank God, rather. Thank God and praise him for his amazing word and his amazing works down through the ages. And that he has sustained people. That he has given people the power to take stands and live for him in the face of death and trial and captivity and sword and flame and persecution. And we can thank him for that. And so if any of those areas apply to you, let us pray and let God do his holy work and pray to him and thank him. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you, Lord, that you are a great God and a gracious God. Thank you for working in our lives. Thank you for working in the lives of people in the past. Lord, thank you for forgiving us our sins and cleansing us of our shortcomings through the, the blood of your son, your sacrifice in our behalf. And thank you, Yeshua, for presenting your blood on a daily basis 
in our behalf. Thank you for ministering in the heavenly sanctuary for us. Thank you for standing before the throne of grace as our intercessor. Lord, cleanse us, refine us, purify us, make us white, cleanse our record books in heaven, and live in us and through us, and do great exploits through us. For your honor, for your glory, for the salvation of souls here on earth, in the midst of it, in the middle of it all, in Yeshua's holy name, amen.